Welcome to See the Change, the podcast where we talk to community builders and change makers and hear the stories that inspired them to take action for social change. I'm your host, Tanya Ayala. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. And if you do, please subscribe and write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Carrington Christmas, a Black Scotian Mi'kmaq German two-spirit person living in the Dish With One Spoon territory known as Toronto, Ontario. She is an auntie, storyteller, public speaker, and advocate for Indigenous youth and indigenizing learning spaces. Let's dive in. Uh, just to let the audience know, we've been friends on Facebook for a little while, and I've always seen your content that you share about some of the movements that you're involved in, the speaking that you do, and some of the articles you've written too. So that's why I was looking forward to inviting you as a guest. And um, so just to get started, uh, for those who don't know you, could you give us a little bit of context about your background and, and your history? Yeah, and so happy to be here. <laughs> so as you said, my name's Carrington. Um, my grandparents are Black Scotian and Mi'kmaq on my father's side and German on my mother's side. Um, I'm neurodiverse. I'm two-spirit. I'm a university dropout, <laughs> a proud one at that. Um, and I'm just super passionate about community, you know, like engagement, support, um, and just education as a way to bridge and, and build relationships. And so that's really what uh, I've been trying to do while I'm here on this earth. So that's all I can think of about me right now. There's, but I'm sure we'll get into more of it as we go along. Awesome. And what is it that you are working on right now? I know you're working from home. Um, what is it that you, what you do? So I work within basically like indigenous education, um, with like Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples, um, having conversations around cultural competency, but also indigenizing education um, and, and what that can look like within college accredited courses. And so it's a really interesting experience um, and it's been great to get to weave culture and knowledge into you know these colonial institutions where they're usually very rigid and not so so fluid and so... Yeah, that's pretty much what I, I do. A lot of it's just education, but I frame it as conversations because I think that's really just what education is. So you see education as more of like a two-way conversation between, I guess, the knowledge and the student? I, I Yeah, I view it as like reciprocal. And so I, I don't even necessarily view one as like a teacher and one as a student. I think we're, we can be both learners and students at the same time. Um, and it's an exchange. And, and so whether I'm, I'm talking at like in a training for work or it's like a panel, um, and very much I don't like talking for long periods of time, I, I prefer to have people also share or ask questions and just engage in conversation because I don't really think people learn from just being spoken at. I think it has to be that exchange of, of knowledge and understanding if, if we're going to see some of that change taking place. And um, just taking a step back to your family history, um, your background is very multidimensional and there's an intersection of different cultures and different family histories. And you have been on a journey of really reclaiming that that history and involving yourself more in, in um, I guess, the resurgence of that culture. How did that journey start for you? 
Yeah. So um, like I said, my grandparents on my father's side, my Nana and Papa, they're Black Scotian Enigma. Um, and I mean, I, I grew up in Black culture. It's it's how I was raised. Um, but when it came to being Mi'kmaq, we were always saying, you know, we're Mi'kmaq and this is where our family is from. But we didn't have that understanding of, of culture and identity. Um, there's a lot of anti-Black racism within Indigenous communities. And even the notion of being a, a Black Indigenous person probably wasn't widely accepted 100 years ago or, or longer. And so... Um, you know, having those conversations as a little girl and growing up, I was kind of like, I want to learn more about what it means to be Indigenous um, and connect to that culture. So I went to the University of Ottawa to study Indigenous studies. And and, and that's where I, I really started to learn a lot and, and make those connections back to like my own identity and where my family comes from and also see how my family was impacted by those systems. Um, and then why we didn't have those strong connections to identity. And so now I can go back and, and share those pieces with them and teach my papa and my, my father, my brother, and all of them about what I've learned and, and what I understand. And so we can ensure that there's a continuation of that knowledge being passed down and that it's not forgotten. And, and you mentioned before that you are a proud <laughs> university dropout. Um, how how was your experience in the academia uh, and, and what led to that decision to maybe kind of drop out of that context of, of learning? Well, I, you know, there is a lot of discomfort. So if you're, you know, if you're Indigenous or, or Black or I think of like a person, in color, person of color, sorry, um, it's weird to have your culture taught to you by someone not from that culture. And I don't think that it means that no one should teach a subject that they're they're not from that identity or culture. However, when when it does a disservice to the students, when it ends up becoming harmful or hurtful um, and misleading, then I think you know that creates a negative relationship with school in general. And so I had really bad experiences with with school in general. Um, like in university, but I was also at the time undiagnosed with having ADHD. Mm. And so I I just messed up a lot. Like I didn't go to class. I really struggled. And I think I dropped out when I was what, 21 around there. And I, I didn't get diagnosed with ADHD until I was 24. Okay. So after I finally had that and I, I started medication and I, I learned how to manage it, I, I, I was already in my career. And so have a lot of debt already. I don't really want to take on anymore. And um, I just think that, you know, school is great. Like folks should totally go, but I also don't think it's the only way we can, I don't want to say like a dream career because I don't like to think careers as dreams, but some people feel that way. Um, but just explore your passions and, mm-hmm. and those natural gifts. Um, we don't need to only go to school to be able to do that. No, I can definitely relate to that, especially that component of sometimes there is discomfort in having um, professors or instructors that are teaching on a culture that they don't have that firsthand experience of. I remember when I was in university, I took a history of Latin America class and I thought, this is going to be so easy, right? And it ended up being my worst grade in my whole university Uh, like career. And I think I just felt that discomfort and that disconnect between the content and 
the instructor who was kind of sharing that knowledge. And there was just so much that kind of overlooked some of the cultural significance of certain events and, and things like that. So mm-hmm. it was such a, it was such a strange experience. Um, yeah. And that, that adds course. just to, to being inauthentic, um, mm-hmm. not genuine. And, and once again, I don't think like it's mandatory that someone be from that, but unless you have relationship, unless people from that community are like, Hey, you know, I see you and like, I love the work that you're doing. And there's only people outside of that culture or, or group that appreciate what you're doing. Then that's like an indication that maybe it's not impactful as the, the, the professor of the institution thinks it is. Right. And I, I feel that there's also that um, aspect of academia being quite exclusive that there isn't an inclusion of, of folks that may not have had that traditional educational path, but those are sometimes the people who are most closely connected to, to culture and grassroots movements and um, being able to share that knowledge. Um, just like yourself, you, you know, dropped mm-hmm. out, you don't have um, the degree title, but you have been able to start valuable conversations within your community and with those outside of it. Um, and I think that sometimes that professor position is kind of held too far away from, from folks that could really make an impact in, in the academic settings. Absolutely. And, you know, and you, you hear that a lot, uh, lived experiences is just as valuable. And the amount of times like I've told people I'm a dropout and they're like, oh my God, you're so articulate, you know, that's so shocking. And I'm just like, Why? Why, why is what's <laughs> shocking? Um, there's this notion that are you somehow less intelligent? And so, yeah, you, you need those people with those lived experiences. Um, I once heard an elder say that they have a PhD on the land and that knowledge is knowledge, whether they got it from a recognized institution or just their grandparents. Um, it's just as valuable. Yeah. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And um, I, I wanted to ask you about something that I saw you wrote this uh, this summer. Um, as the BLM movement had gained a lot of attention and traction um, during the summer, you wrote an op-ed for the magazine Shifter. And you talked about the pressure to identify with one culture or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that you mentioned in there was which grandmother are you not going to honor today? And I found that really interesting. So Mm. for yourself, what does honoring your ancestors look like for you? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, So originally I I was thinking about that years ago, uh, depending on the conversation and be like, Oh, you know, like my dad's black or like, Oh yeah, I'm indigenous or my mom's German. Um, But it was never, all of that at once because it felt like I was being too extra and people like, Oh my God, Carrington's so extra. Why does she have to say all of that? Um, And I think I was having a conversation with someone and they were like, well, which one of your grandmothers are you not going to honor today? Then I was like, what? (laughs) I want to honor all of my grandmothers. Um, So now whenever I introduce myself in like a talk or or conversation or something like that, I, I make sure to honor all of my grandmothers. And so for me, honoring them is, acknowledging them and remembering them, um, naming them and reflecting on those connections and, you know, thinking about how much they would have had to have gone through, you know, endured, endured mm-hmm. 
um, just to see me here today, for me to be here today. Um, and so we have this concept in, in my culture, but also in other indigenous nations as well, um, about seven generations. And mm-hmm. so this notion that with every action and decision that we make, we're thinking of the impact seven generations before us, but also of those seven generations after us. And so I like to think that seven generations ago, my grandmothers were thinking of me and that they loved me. And so seven generations from now, I want my grandchildren to know that I loved them and I thought of them and that every decision and action that I was taking, I was thinking of them and how that would impact the world that they're going to live in. And so I think that's how I honor them. Wow, that's actually, that's really powerful to think of that in in terms of generations, past and future. Mm-hmm. And when you when you talk about certain like decisions or actions that you're making, is that in, in what areas of your life do you apply that mindset? Um, is it career wise? Is it, I, I could even think of sustainability in terms of um, you were mentioning knowledge of the land and, and such. Um, where would you focus that mindset for? Well, I think, you know, big one is of course going to be family. Um, acknowledging where you come from, knowing where you come from, being able to name, name it. Um, and then there's also, like you said, sustainability. I am nowhere near perfect and I'm not the one to like lecture anyone (laughs) on environmental practices, but also having to do some reflection on what I, on what I eat and how I act and the decisions that I make and having to, to make better choices is something that I'm actively thinking about, um, down to, you know, I, I think in a way maybe careers, but going back to the conversations that I have with people, Um, getting to work with social workers or professors, um, you know, different institutions or or people in general, just Mm -hmm. having those conversations. And I don't necessarily go into it with the intention of hoping to change people's minds, but just open their minds to different perspectives. And so if, if we see that impact, if, you know, people start to question certain things or they're opening up to other perspectives, I think that will just create a more open environment in, in the future, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it, it in that way, and of course, like your, the partner that you choose, like I'm very thankful for my partner, <laughs> um, but choosing someone that's like a healthy relationship and the types of communications that we have and the foundation we create together is also going to impact the, the future children that we'll have together. Um, and so you have all of that in your mind, dealing with your personal trauma, um, getting help, going to therapy, connecting with culture, learning your language. You, you think of all of these things and, and what that's going to look like seven generations from now. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. And I've heard about that. I've heard that notion of the seven generations before in some other contexts as well. So it seems to be something that um, has a, a universal impact across different cultures. And going back to having those conversations and opening up minds to accept different perspectives, um, you mentioned that, or you acknowledge that in your Indigenous cultures and communities and circles, that there are anti-Black sentiments. Um, you know, I, I'm Latina, and there's also anti-Black sentiments in, in our community. And 
how do you approach that almost clash? You know, I don't necessarily think it's a class of clash of cultures. Like originally when the Underground Railroad was was occurring, um, there were many Black folks who came to Canada. Um, and as my papa says, it was kind of like Black and Native folks against the white man. Like they just created relationships to survive together. Um, they created communities and kinship ties. And like it's that foundation that I think a lot of us have forgotten because colonialism puts us in this place where we're fighting for resources. And so instead of everyone getting what they need, it's X for indigenous peoples, but not for black folks. And then there's like, well, what about us? Like, why don't we get that? And then a ton of support for black lives matter. And some indigenous folks are like, well, what about us? And it's like, let's change our perspectives and be super thankful that Black Lives Matter is getting the attention that it deserves. And let's also recognize the influence that Black movements have had on not just Indigenous movements, but a ton of movements in general. There was the Black Power Movement, then there was the Red Power Movement. We saw Black Lives Matter, and they didn't just advocate on Black issues. You know, we see now that the Redskins are changing their name. Like, that's because of this international conversations that are taking place. And I don't think it's to say, you know, this wouldn't have happened if um, if it weren't for Black Lives Matter, because of course there's a ton of indigenous activism uh, that contributes to this as well. But we're doing this together. Um, it's it goes back to that relationship. Like we have to remember the relationships that we have, and and stop putting ourselves against one another and trying to figure out who has it worse. And look at those commonalities of how we can work together. I think something that we need to do is just like sit down together and eat, have a conversation. I want to hear from your elders and you hear from my elders. Let's bring our different drums together, our musics together and, and just laugh and reflect on that resilience because you see so much resilience in the different communities. And it's that resilience we need to focus on. And I think when we're, when we're looking to break down anti-Black racism, I think it's important to acknowledge that the foundation of white supremacy is anti-blackness. And so in the article that I wrote, it was like, you cannot have indigenous self-determination without black liberation. We saw in residential schools, how these children were indoctrinated with you know, anti-black racism, with homophobia, with all of these things. And so I don't think having those conversations of, I like to say calling someone in versus calling them out has to be hostile. But the, the receiver also has to be in a place where they can hear that. Um, and so it could just be calling in your auntie and saying, hey, you know, don't make comments like that. I don't appreciate that. And if they fluff it off, it's like, okay, well, I'm choosing not to be in relationship with you anymore because I'm thinking of what my future will look like and I can't have my children around that. I don't want them taking in that knowledge. And so it, it can be difficult, but... I, I think we're seeing the changes happening and more communities are coming together. Um, but that's because people are willing to to work together. So that definitely makes sense. There's so much more to accomplish in solidarity because there is a common objective of, I almost don't want to call it diversity inclusion. That sounds like such a corporate term, but like you said, self-determination. 
and, and reclaiming, you know, all of our different cultures and how beautifully they can coexist and really thrive together. I know personally, I've, I've had to exclude certain folks from my life and made that conscious decision. And it's not easy. But when I think about the acceptance and safety of other family members and other friends, it becomes that much more important to, to set those boundaries and to really focus on the solidarity with, with folks that, um, that need that uplifting. Right. Mm -hmm. And when we look back, we see how much like our ancestors thought of relationships. Um, in, in Mi'kmaq, I was reading this, uh, this book, it was really old. I don't know how old it was, but it was an account of this dance. I don't, but I don't think a lot of folks practice it anymore or ritual or something like that, but it was like um, the snake dance, but it was about rattlesnakes. We don't have rattlesnakes in, in Nova Scotia. And so the book was essentially alluding that they think we were probably gifted this from a tribe in South America um, or like really down South. And so our elders have always said, we, we traded and met with people from all over the world before contacts with the Europeans. And so I believe that we had those relationships. And so just remembering or going back to those relationships, I think would help us a lot. And in terms of having these conversations, we were talking about academia. I think there's definitely a lag between those institutions of education and really the, the current conversations that we're having. You mentioned that there were some negative experiences in your university career, but what would you have liked to see in those courses that would have um, made a more positive impact or you think would have um, made a more positive contribution to those conversations? I think in general, the way, quote unquote, higher learning is structured, it's very, it's about what you can remember. It's not about what you've learned. And so reviewing 50 chapters of a book and then quizzing me on it, I've learned nothing. I've, I've, I've mastered the skill of, of what I can remember and keep in my mind. And then after I'm done the exam, it's floated away. I, I don't really, I didn't get it. I, I got it, I wrote it, and then it's gone. And so when I think of, you know, indigenizing education, why am I in a classroom staring at a board, typing my notes on a computer when we could be out on the land, even if it was like a picnic or we, we all came together? I know it's hard because there could be 300 students in a class, but even then, restructuring the way our classes are so that it can be more about the relationship and understanding and less about assessing whether or not I'm going to get an 80 on this paper because that, once again, I could write a really great essay and not know how to engage with Indigenous communities at all. And we see that, right? People who are now pressured to get their master's went through all of this school but have no real-life experience. They don't know how to talk to people. They don't know how to engage or build relationships. They know how to write really great essays or frameworks and strategies, but that means nothing if I can't actually get those people to want to use it or to listen to me. And so... I want to have those conversations. I would have liked to have just been able to sit, sit down with other students and, and learn from each other. Um, 
have a better relationship with the professors and yeah, just again, the overall structure. Like, of course, UVO had a, University of Ottawa had um, like an Indigenous Resource Centre and all of that stuff, which was great. We built amazing relationships in there. We have feasts and potlucks and all of that stuff, but how can we translate that energy and connection of community into the classroom so that students are also fostering relationships with each, with each other? And it's not just, once again, staring at a, a screen or a lecture board um, because there's so much pressure that there's so much pressure on us to go into those careers that there's not enough conversations about just being human, um, of understanding where we all come from and like building those foundational relationships. There's just a bunch of different ways we could approach it. Um, but it takes a lot of buy-in from people who don't want to see those structures changing. Um, and I firmly believe that you cannot decolonize colonial spaces or institutions. Like the education system is co in inherently colonial. It was founded upon the exclusion and othering of people. It was, you know, very superior. Um, you had to be from a certain social status or gender uh, in order to be entitled to those spaces. And now we've just kind of built on top of that and tried to change the policies, but the foundation still remains the same. And so I can indigenize it. I can bring an elder into the classroom. I can maybe make a creative assignment for you. So that's not just all testing, but at the end of the day, it's still the same institution. It's just been kind of tweaked a little bit. And so I, I firmly believe that you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color need to create their own institutions uh, completely separate because that's when we can build institutions we come from that actually reflect who we are as a people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was just thinking that you started your major in Indigenous studies. We're having this conversation about self-determination being tied to Black Lives Matter but even university programs seem to have these silos of cultures, right? You have Indigenous studies and you have Middle Eastern studies and you have maybe gender studies. But we often don't have um, a kind of collective program of, of those different histories. And as someone who embodies different cultures, would that have made a difference for you in maybe continuing to pursue your studies or feeling that there was more value in those studies for you? Absolutely. I think, I think and something I've really been reflecting on a lot for probably the last couple of years, but um, is even the way in North America we frame Indigenous, it's very uh, as if we like put a monopoly on it. And so when we say the word Indigenous, we have this image in our head of what we expect it to look like. And so I don't like the word BIPOC, and I know I used it because there's no other acronym that we can use right now. But it centers Blackness outside of being Indigenous, and it centers people of color outside of being Indigenous. And so I was in this Facebook group, and someone was saying, um, well, you know, people of color, they don't understand, like, Black and Indigenous issues um, because, you know, like, of loss of language and stuff like that. And I was like someone could be indigenous from another country and live here and fully understand the impacts of colonization, loss of language and ceremonies and cultures. And so the assumption 
that because I perceive you and label you as a person of color, that you're, you're not indigenous is very harmful. And so I think we need to open our eyes to what indigeneity actually is. And so if there was a course that was like indigeneity around the world, and it talked about people from India and China and, you know, Kenya and New Zealand and all of these different countries and their indigenous peoples and their, their teachings and worldviews, that would just inform my understanding so much more. Uh, I went to the United Nations uh, Indigenous Peoples Permanent Forum. I think I got that wrong. A couple years ago, when it was my first time, and seeing other Indigenous cultures from around the world just sharing their songs, wearing their traditional clothing, I was like, oh, there's other Indigenous people in the world. And so, you know, we have to check ourselves of how we're framing Indigeneity and, and what it does or doesn't look like. Black people can be Indigenous. You know, Africans are Indigenous to their lands. And so BIPOC is just very, it others, and it puts people into boxes based on how we perceive them. And so I don't know how to break out of that box, <laughs> um, but the best we can do is, is at least acknowledge that um, and also ask people how they want, how they identify, how they want to be referred to as, um, and just not make assumptions about people's identities or experiences. And so I think within education, if there is more of that cultural integration of, of once again, just sharing, it, it would be very different. We would just have such a better understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. And even um, going back to elementary or high school education in Canada, I remember from my experience that things like residential schools or treaties was very much just kind of skimmed over, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of black and white photos. Um, and it seemed to frame indigenous as this long lost civilization. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is ridiculous. I was very fortunate to have parents that were more, uh, informed and more open to having conversations and sharing um, resources with me. But for many students that come out of the, the public school systems, they don't have the access or they aren't presented with that information for an accurate portrayal of historical as well as present issues. So as someone who has conversations about this and has um, educated others about your own culture and about your experiences, what advice would you give to educators in the public school system who are maybe exploring different ways to include more in their curriculums? Mm, I think, and you know, it, it's very hard because folks are, like, teachers and stuff might be very limited in their resources, but when you can bring actual people in, um, you can have an elder tell you a story or, or show you a song, um, talk to you about their life lessons and, and things like that. It's just a very different feeling. You know, like I've talked to teachers and they're, they're like, oh, I saw this art form and I tried to replicate it with my students. And I was like, whoa, I can't do that. <laughs> um, I know your intention is like super good and that's awesome but there's a lot of cultural meaning and sacredness in that art. 
And if you don't have that understanding and the knowledge on those things, it's also doing a disservice to the people that you're trying to teach because they're not getting that authentic experience. And so whether it's having to like petition your school or, or get more funds or whatever you can do, if you can bring in those actual people to tell their stories, um, then do that. If they can't, there's so many videos and books and podcasts that can be done um, that offer a lot of knowledge that can be used. So I think people have to step outside of the resources that they're using. I'm a huge fan of TEDx Talks. They have so good, so many good podcasts, episodes. And so use that with your students. Um, ask them for their reflections. I remember I was talking to a teacher and they're like, well, you know, how do I talk to my students about safe spaces or, you know, respect? And I was like, we use a lot of these words. Like English is a very ugly, boring language. We, <laughs> we need to use so many words to convey emotions. And, and so if I say, be respectful, Billy. Have you asked Billy, how does he know when he's being respected? How do you know when you're respecting someone? What does that look like to you? How do you feel when someone is respecting you? How do you know? Don't just tell them to be respectful. How are we teaching them to think about safety or kindness? What does kindness look like in action? Can they explain that to you? Or did you just tell them a word and they're expected to, to learn it over time? Um, in Mi'kmaq, we're a verb-based language. Our, our words speak to states of being. Um, we don't have a word for thank you. It means you are good to me. We don't have a word for goodbye. It's I'll see you again, whether in this life or the next. And so it's it's constantly in action. It's not just, you know, a, a singular noun that requires context to understand the meaning behind it. It's embedded in the language. And we see that. My partner, he's Colombian. Um, there are words in Spanish that just don't translate into English. Yeah. Right? It's true. <laughs> you know? And so... It's also like that in French and German. And, you know, English just has this hard time of conveying those things. And so we have to find ways to convey it. And so that requires a lot of reflection, um, people to share those reflections and have those conversations and not, once again, not just dictating, letting the students actually be the teachers and lead those conversations, especially young children. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Oftentimes we, we view children as maybe not having the capacity to absorb some knowledge or um, being able, I don't know, to have the capacity of paying attention to certain things, but um, they're capable of a lot more than, than what we kind of traditionally expect from them. Mm, yes. You know, with colonization, like throughout the Americas, Europeans came with the idea that children are empty vessels that need to be filled, that they don't know what they want because they're too young. They, they aren't old enough to make choices for their lives. But what is that reinforcing the notion that you're only entitled to bodily autonomy when you turn 18? Like, what's the significance of that age, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, why not 14? Like, who decided that 18 is now when I get to decide and I'm entitled to make decisions about myself and what I want to do with my life. Um, and so children already have it all. Like they are the purest of souls. Um, 
and th- and they're not impacted by all of this weird social norms of like, don't ask that question. I can't do it. I remember when I was a little girl <laughs> and the neighbor dyed her hair. And I was like, hey, you dyed your hair. My mom's like, don't do that. We don't ask people that they dyed their hair. And I'm like, why not? Like, <laughs> you changed it. I'm, I'm acknowledging that you changed it. You know, what's what's wrong with that? My partner's daughter, she comes in here to our home and I swear almost every time she just yells how happy she is. I'm so happy. I'm happy. And that just reminds me to reflect on my own happiness and why I don't celebrate those little moments. And so children are our greatest teachers. And so when we're talking about decolonizing and indigenizing, it requires adults learning to shut up and let their children lead and teach them. And that wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it with a friend. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly contributor at patreon.com slash see the change. For more information about our guest and see change initiative, you can check out the show description for all the links. Don't forget to follow us on social media for the latest updates. This has been a Sea Change Initiative production, written, produced, and edited by myself, Tanya Ayala. Music provided by Charles the Emperor. Don't forget to join us for another episode in two weeks. Thank you for listening.